really getting to know those people and getting them to trust me and know that, hey, I'm a person too, and I, I just want to tell the story right and, um, like to get them to trust me and trust me with their story. That's the voice of Alec Lazenby, one of the writers at the Martlet. Which is, whenever I do get somebody to trust me with their story, it's it's always an amazing feeling because, but it's also a responsibility. And this is Michael John Lowe, another writer. You know, a lot of people on the street come from very complex backgrounds, and not everyone's reason or journey can be put into a news article very quickly, and it sometimes takes a lot of time to build those trusts. Both of these journalists work together on an article in the unhoused community in Victoria. Concerns are growing for those without shelter as the winter weather gets worse. I'll be talking to them today about the story itself, but also on how they went producing it, some of their challenges, and the dynamics of writing a collaborative piece. Hey, I'm Laura Smith, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Martlet Pod bi-weekly podcast covering some of the most important news stories from the latest issue of UVic's student-run newspaper. Produced here on the traditional territory of Lokungan and Wasanich people in Victoria, BC. Also covered in this episode, this fall semester UVic Humanities introduced a new course that gives first-year students some hands-on experience in the field. It really that first-hand knowledge that getting your hands All questions failed on the recent UVSS referendum due to quorum not being met. One was on open educational resources and the other two on what to do with funds directed at PERC, a group no longer connected to the UVSS. The most like fact, the referendum are the most important uh, way that the UVSS uh, conducts its democracy, it's the highest decision-making authority, uh, and I think it's important that 15% uh, of students have a say in it. The Vital Signs report was recently published, showing that those in Victoria, specifically youth, have felt the effects of the pandemic in many ways. Like, it was surprising to, to see those st- statistics, but at the same time, it was kind of like, well, yeah, of course this is happening. But first, that conversation with Alec and Michael on how they went about covering their latest story. Hi, I'm Alec Lazenby. I'm a senior staff writer with the Martlets. And yeah, so as Laura said, I was on episode two of the podcast. And so I won't go too in depth into my introduction, but hi. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. I came to the Martlet, I believe, as a volunteer in the summer of 2019, um, when I had a lot of opinions. <laughs> um, I've actually written very few opinion pieces, and instead um, mainly focused on finding all these like little weird stories that I've grown to fall in love with. Um, some highlights are random cookbooks hidden in internet servers on the campus fine arts website. But um, yeah, that's usually what I do, write weird stuff. Um, But occasionally I also tackle more important topics such as housing. Great, well, that's a perfect segue to what we're talking about today um, because 
We're doing things a little bit differently than the last two interviews that we've had on this podcast in that we're going to talk a bit more about the process you've gone through in writing a story. And that story today is talking about homelessness in Victoria. Just to kind of start off, um, would you guys be able to give a quick overview of what the story is? So the story that Michael and I wrote focuses on the city of Victoria's plan to end in park sheltering in within Victoria, which has been a contentious issue, to say the least, um, over the last ooh, eight months now, since really since the beginning of the pandemic and homelessness really started to become more more seen. However, the city of Victoria is hoping to move 200 people into housing by the end of this year, so December 31st, and to um, end sheltering in parks by um, homeless members of the community by the end of March uh, 2021. And so they've they've um, gone about a multilateral approach in uh, finding different housing units and different spots to place people. However, as the winter is coming and the cold sets in and all of that, uh, aid workers and support organizations are clamoring that this has not come about quick enough. And so we talked a little bit about that as well in our article and about how some community members um, got together and built two showers, but they weren't allowed to be installed by bylaw who shut off the water to Beacon Hill Park. And also the fact that um, an aid worker, Thea Hinks, who works for Solid, uh, told me that the city of Victoria and the aid organizations have run out of um, tents mm. and blankets for members of the homeless community and that by law has been stepping up their enforcement mechanisms um, and confiscating people's belongings, which um, should not be taking place given that the 7-7 seven to seven bylaw, uh, which generally prohibits sheltering in place between, I believe it's 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., um, has been suspended for several months now. And so uh, aid organizations are crying out that bylaws should not be, uh, these confiscations, and uh, that uh, with the winter coming, people are ever more vulnerable. And how do you both go about like deciding what stories to print when? Because as you both kind of have been saying, is that homelessness, of course, is an ongoing issue um, and one very big in Victoria. Are there specific things you look for when you're trying to decide when to kind of focus on something? Is it just when uh, like an event happens in Victoria or um, something comes up that it like brings this issue to the forefront? So for me, um, the way I go about this and covering this beat is because we're a bi-weekly newspaper, uh, we can't, we don't have the capacity to do quick news as much. Mm -hmm. So I look for more broad-based um, events or circumstances that are going on. We are a bi-weekly publication with not the largest amount of we, we, we have to choose and pick our stories very mm -hmm. carefully, right? Totally. Um, we can't be Times columnists. We can't write on every press release that, you know, whichever organization puts out. Um, we can be something closer to, let's say, Capital Daily. 
um, where we do some sort of long form investigative piece. But I would say that we focus specifically on giving not um, people in power voices, but really to look at what's happening. So for example, um, why we chose to cover this one is that it's been a while since we've actually done a refresher. So Alec has gone and covered quite a few of the, um, let's say like auxiliary parts. So really talking about individuals and um, organizations that are doing to help, but we don't have, um, we didn't have this thing that could go like, this is what it is. So essentially um, what happened with just going like, well, I need to write a piece on whatever's happening in Victoria. And I was like, hmm. So in essentially, you mean you want a Vox explainer? Um, so it's kind of just like an article going a little deeper, but also approaching it like you don't know what's happening, right? So in our writing styles, we actually um, don't treat it like the reader knows everything about it. We actually, um, in the first, I believe, three or four paragraphs, we just take a lot of background set. And that includes historical precedents prior to 2008, camping or sheltering in Victoria was essentially illegal and that was overturned um, by the BC Supreme Court. And the conversations that we, well, that I did um, research on kind of reflect that the same city dialogue amongst the citizens and its businesses and, you know, aid workers, the unhoused, the city, etc., remain essentially the same. And not much has changed other than the fact that right now people are not criminalized for sleeping on the streets. And that's the luxury we have as a bi-weekly publication that can devote a little more time to each piece. We may have limited availability to cover everything, but when we do cover everything, when we do cover something, we try our best to do it very well. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's these two sides of being like the smaller university newspaper on one, as you said, there might not be as many people or as much funding available to you as a bigger newspaper or a bigger media source. But then maybe you're able to dive into some of those more local issues or, um, yeah, just things that potentially are bypassed by the bigger media. And I also wanted to ask, like, what what are some of the specific challenges with writing a story like this? As you guys have been talking, you clearly both are very passionate about this um, issue, so I'm sure it's difficult to kind of balance opinion versus news. Can you just speak on that a little bit? Um, so for me, although I have been covering this beat for quite a while and have gotten to know several members of the unhoused community quite well, it's important to me that I remain impartial in my coverage because there are it it needs to be told not from a biased lens it needs to be more like here's what is going on um and also the fact that there is work being done by the city there is work being done by aid organizations um which members of the unhoused community don't always see or don't always appreciate and so that's also something that has to be balanced in regards to challenges of getting information and covering these topics a lot of the members of the unhoused community lack uh, easy 
communication mm-hmm. um, because they many of them don't have access to a cell phone or even if they have a cell phone they don't have ready access to a charger and so they're hard to reach at points but sort of just getting sources and getting them to talk to you and give you information um, can be difficult there are definitely challenges that can that are faced by journalists in regards to um, covering the unhoused community and that deters a lot of quick quick news um, organizations from sort of going about it because you need to spend more time and resources um, in order to actually do the stories justice. Alec really hits the nail home. It's really sources, sources, sources. You have to find sources that are balanced, sources that we don't use the word both sides, but we wanted to say like a wide variety of perspectives. Mm-hmm. So some places will give you very quick and quotable responses. I'm sure if you go to Vic PD, they will give you a very quick and very snappy response of how they're doing and what they're doing and what needs to be done. Um, usually in the fun, like usually in the form of, well, we kind of need more funding to help this. Um, and we've said, or, you know, bylaw officers, and a lot of people will either be unwilling to comment to media or um, just plain too busy, right? Mm-hmm. You have people um, on the ground either trying to survive or people just really putting in work after work and school, um, doing advocacy, activist work, supporting those people who need to survive, or you're a city councilor who has to deal with an entire city, right? So um, you see, we have the problem here. And like Alec mentioned, we always want to get you know, good perspectives from the ground and um, from places where we don't usually see a lot of people speaking up. And the danger is really reducing people's voices on the street to those one or two voices and not getting the depth of information um, and stories that, you know, a lot of people on the street come from very complex backgrounds and not everyone's reason or journey can be put into a news article very quickly and it sometimes takes a lot of time to build those trusts um, and the sources are until they are willing to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I have to, um, on a personal anecdote, so I have been going to these weekly meetings at Beacon Hill Park for members of the unhoused. I haven't been able to go for the past few weeks just due to personal circumstances. But it's really interesting to hear the variety of perspectives that you get from a meeting like that where people aren't afraid of speaking up, whereas they may be more concerned about speaking to the news media or what what have you. And so it's really getting to know those people and getting them to trust me and know that, hey, I'm a person too and I I just want to tell the story right and um, like to get them to trust me and trust me with their story, which is whenever I do get somebody to trust me with their story, it's, it's always an amazing feeling because, but it's also a responsibility to sort of be like, Hey, I need to tell, I need to tell this right. And I need to do it justice. So this is one thing we have to be aware of too, right? The unhoused read the news. 
media oftentimes is unaware of how much impact they can bring when they cover a demographic and reduce them to a single story. This has been also the tagline of you know tag like TED talks. Mm-hmm. Um, where they talk about the dangers of taking an underreported demographic and just, you know, equating one or two people's voices and making that representative of a whole community, right? One of the TED Talks Michael is referring to specifically is The Danger of a Single Story by Chiamanda Adichie. Um, so that's one thing that I am quite happy that... Um, there are news organizations in Victoria that are trying to bring uh, that diversity of voices out. Mm-hmm. Um, we are extremely lucky to have multiple competing news organizations. And I know this is not the case in smaller cities or towns in BC or really across Canada. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it sounds like there's a lot of focus on not just reporting the news, but also like trying to build community relations and just, yeah, looking a little bit deeper into different relations and things in the city, which is fantastic. Um, I also wanted to ask a little bit about what it's been like uh, collaborating on this story, um, just because quite a few stories are written just by one person here at the Martlet. If you could talk on maybe some of the differences that it is when you're working with another person here on the story. Oh, you know, working with Michael is awful. <laughs> it's a real hardship. No, um, working with uh, else, a colleague on a story is, is always an amazing chance to sort of see how another journalist approaches the subject and approaches their writing and approaches sources and all of that. And you really learn from each other and you learn other tricks of the trade, so to speak. And what I love about working with Michael in particular is that we we do have very different ways of going about things and of sort of conceptualizing a story and conceptualizing sort of what sources we need and what background information we need. And it really helps it so that when the finished story comes together, we have both of our we we've melded sort of our two styles of doing things and it and I really do feel like the few stories that I've done with Michael have really been the better for it because we have two very different approaches and melding them sort of really, really brings us together and makes it a, makes it a lot stronger. Oh, Alec is too nice. Um, <laughs> personally for me, collaborating with stories means that I can get to write less. So that's always <laughs> a plus. Um, no, but in all seriousness, collaborating really you get double the sources, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was a quick article in terms of the turnaround. We were both very busy in this like terrible reading week era. Like everyone, we're students as well, right? So we have these assignments and everything and like travel and like personal crises. So it was really good that we could be comfortable and be like, hey, we're making this happen. We have two networks we're going to try and reach out and see what comes back um and that has almost always been the case um whenever i collaborate with someone it's just you get twice the network right and that's really good um collaboration really reveals 
what you are good at and what you're not so good at. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's fantastic. Um, just as we're wrapping up here, uh, do either of you have anything to say to maybe students or people interested into getting into news? I think, um, I know I've talked to lots of people who are like, oh, that seems like some cool thing, but how do you even get started? And I think this is a good chance for you guys to talk because you both work in a student newspaper, which lots of people kind of get started in. Um, could you say anything to that? People tell me that the Martlet is intimidating to go into. Um, I just want to say writing a passable news story is really, really simple. <laughs> you just Google stuff, you put it together, and maybe, you know, talk to someone. Be like, hi, sorry, I'm new to this. Um, do you want to just tell me what's going on? Can you ca- clarify what you're trying to say here? Oh, that's really good. Thank you. Sorry for taking up your time. And then you take that and then you just kind of, you know, everyone knows how to transcribe. You just quote people, right? Writing it well is a different story, but I just want to dispel this myth that it's hard work to get into. Mm-hmm. It's really about this perceived barrier, right? Um, I've seen people do pitches, like people at the Martlet have pitched to, you know, for the mail, Taiyi, while they are in the Martlet, right? Mm-hmm. And really, this pitching process is actually not that hard. I've begun, like, I've begun pitching to other publications myself, and I realized, wow, this is actually kind of easy. Yes, you will get rejected at a much higher rate than the Martlet. I think at the Martlet, we are much more willing to work over pitches and see if there's a way to tweak it to make it better. And, you know, organizations that are more for profit instead of us would just kind of take it and go like well you know you might need some more work we're just going to reject this and you might feel like that pressure but really like alex said starting somewhere like the martlet or your local newspaper that is hurting for volunteers or um, freelancers it really is just um, this perceived wall. Obviously, um, if you're brand new at this, I don't expect anyone to pitch to the New York Times or I don't know Wall Street Journal and get in. Well, if you do, let me know. I really want to learn from you. But getting in that first step, getting that first piece of thing published, like I said, in the the summer of 2019, I just had something that I really wanted to say, right? And I just messaged someone and going, hey, sorry, can I walk, like, can I write about this? And then it happened. Mm -hmm. So, and then I got drawn in and now I'm forced to write with Alec and, you know, cover (laughs) important things and try and, you know, um, do the Martlet, right? But um, yeah, just really go for it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And we'll be back with some more news after this short break. This fall, a new humanities course at UVic, Discovering Humanities Research, has given some students a chance for hands-on experience. Dr. Alexandra Darcy, the UVic Linguistics Professor and Associate Dean of Humanities who's teaching the course, wanted to give an experiential and interdisciplinary opportunity for first-year students. So, because I'm a linguist and mm-hmm. I teach a fourth-year summer course, 
actually carry out the research yourself and mm-hmm. perform some kind of analysis on the data. Students involved are offered nine different social sciences and humanities projects to choose from, with offerings from a variety of faculties, including English and medieval studies. And so thinking now about a first-year student coming into the Faculty of Humanities who has declared humanities as their home, how do we best get them to see and appreciate the multidisciplinarity of humanities and what humanities is really about at its core. While the course was originally set up as a one-time seminar, it was recently approved to become a regular course that will be offered to incoming students with a 90% or higher average grade. As we develop other levels to to this course, sort of follow-on courses, Mm -hmm. where the desire is to open up other pathways into the course. SS fall election, students were given the chance to decide on the fate of two potential student fees. One of these was a vote on introducing an open educational resources fee. The second asked students about ending the collection of the Public Interest Research Group, or PERG, fee. Neither campaign reached quorum. Votes are needed from at least 15% of the undergrad students, so neither campaign passed. This is the second time there's been an attempt for the OER, the Open Educational Resources Fee and again was led by UVic student Jonathan Granier. This is what he had to say about the turnout and results. It's not too surprising, to be honest. Full referendums uh, are always tough in terms of reaching quorum. And then uh, with COVID on top of it, I, I, yeah, it, it seemed like the likely outcome. And I was happy to see that it won uh, by the approximately the same margin uh, and last time around, which was about 80% uh, in favor, 20% against. The first was held last spring and, like this one, asked students if they wanted to add $1.50 to their student fees to go towards the investment in more open educational resources. This would be like online textbooks. While referendum quorum has been traditionally very hard to achieve at UVic, this year presented some additional challenges with all classes being online. And not being able to have those meaningful connections, um, is tough. Like they, they teach you in political science that the easiest way to sway a voter or to get a voter to vote is to talk to them uh, in person, and not being able to do that is, is, is not great. The PERG referendum came in response to the Vancouver Island Public Interest Research Group ending their relationship with the UVSS. In the past, this group has used the fee to fund scholarships and research projects for marginalized communities. Two questions were linked to this one asking if students wanted to eliminate the fee, and the second asking what they wanted to do with the fees already collected that are currently sitting in a UVS trust fund. For now, the funds will remain where they are until a new PERG is found or another referendum passes. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted communities all around the globe, and Victoria is no exception to this. The Victoria Foundation releases a yearly report that offers a snapshot into the community. This year, they included a pandemic snapshot after surveying around 1,800 Greater Victoria residents on the pandemic. The report showed that across all age groups, about half of respondents felt that COVID has impacted their mental health. 29% experienced job or income loss. 
One of the main findings, though, was that youth under 30 were particularly impacted. Especially because of the pandemic, um, youth were really struggling to get that support they needed um, from, you know, things that were coming up because of the, the isolation. This is Zahura Ahmed, the Grants and Youth Programs Associate at the Victoria Foundation. These stats she's referring to is that 47% of youths reported that they had job or income loss because of the pandemic. 61% reported that their mental health suffered. Outside of the pandemic report, Vital Signs looks at key issues and strengths of the community. The top three issues this year was housing, cost of living, and livelihood. The survey covered 12 key issues, and when rated over all 12, Victoria's quality of life was rated at a B, a drop from last year's b rating. Well, that's it for this episode. If you want to find out more about the stories I touched on here, or if you want to read some other stories, make sure to check out The Martlet at martlet.ca. The Martlet Pod is produced in the studios of CFUV. Check them out at cfuv.ca. Thanks for listening. I'm Laura Smith.